You're tuned into the eighth edition of the Free City Radio podcast. We have both interviews and audio letters uh, for you from all over the place on this edition. Um, so we're going to start with an interview I did with Kitra Kahana, uh, who has launched uh, an important campaign called Artist for Long-Term Care. Um, this is basically an initiative to try to mobilize activists and artists to um, draw attention to both the conditions of people living in long-term care facilities in the context of the pandemic, but also to look at the rights and also the efforts being made by caregivers. Um, so the uh, campaign again is called Artists for Long-Term Care. Kitra is a photojournalist and an artist, and I had the chance to reach her in Tucson, Arizona. Here's our conversation. So my father lives in a CHSLD in Montreal, and when this first, I guess in early March, I, you know, I started learning more and more, reading more about coronavirus, and immediately realized how danger his life was um, by living in one of these facilities. These facilities, long-term care facilities, are really at the epicenter of this crisis and of this pandemic. Um, you have high concentrations of very vulnerable people, elderly people, disabled folks, all living in very close proximity, requiring intimate care multiple times a day. Yeah. So, so there's no possibility for social distancing in these spaces. And you have the highest concentration of people who are at risk of dying from COVID-19. So early on, I, I, you know, I, my mind was racing and I thought, okay, we have to evacuate my father from the facility wow. because he's, he's just not going to be safe there. And what you have to remember is that these people, people who live in long-term care facilities, disabled individuals like my father, um, they require so much care. He's quadriplegic. And so, you know, on a daily basis, he needs two strong men basically to do his intimate care. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard work, uh, what caregivers do. And so we couldn't bring him home. That just wasn't an option for us, even though experts were saying, if you have a loved one in one of these facilities, our best advice to you is to bring them home okay. for their survival. And so when it became clear that, you know, that my father was going to stay in one of these facilities, I just said, then I'm going to give my absolute everything to try to protect the residents and the workers who are really her heroically caring for them. The, the workers themselves are largely a, a vulnerable population as well because many caregivers, many frontline nurses and PABs come from immigrant and migrant communities. And so they themselves are also, you know, a population that needs additional support during 
the pandemic, and then they're, they're in these facilities um, putting their own lives at risk. So the way, the way to protect the residents is really to protect the workers. And I just, you know, I started early on, I started looking around and, you know, I, I was seeing all these mutual aid groups um, popping up online. All of my activist friends were getting involved in all types of initiatives. So I just started reaching out to people and saying, you know, asking, hey, I want to join the working group for long-term care facilities. Like, is there a signal group of people who are just concerned about this highly, highly vulnerable uh, population? This, this like, you know, this, it's like a tornado of vulnerability in, this, in these buildings. And I want to talk to the other activists and connect with the other activists who are already working in this space and are already um, advocating for these, for these folks. Yeah. And, and I, you know, amongst kind of the rad community and my own, you know, just amongst young, young activists, I, I wasn't finding people. Uh, people would kind of respond to me and say, oh, well, I think I know someone that might have worked in a nursing home. You can call them. Um so I, I start. I just started noticing that there's this really kind of like lack of awareness and focus on advocating uh, for these communities, for for these facilities, for nursing home, for the elderly, for disabled folks in these facilities, and for the caregivers. I feel like they're not. There isn't as strong of a focus on them. The people that I do see really fighting for them are families and healthcare workers who, you know, understand the intricacies of why these locales are so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, there's, and there's, there's lawyers, there's, there's other folks who are very concerned with this area. Um, but I, I wasn't, I was seeing a real lack of imagery yeah. um, online and I was seeing a real lack of just just everyday people commenting about this and saying we have to do something. So I thought, you know, one of the best ways to engage the public, there's many ways to engage the public, but sure. I myself, I'm a photojournalist and I'm a filmmaker. And so I believe deeply in, um you know, to my bone, I believe in the power of storytelling and in the power of art to move and to shake other people into action. And so we launched this initiative called Artists for Long-Term Care, where we're calling out to artists, photographers, filmmakers, poets, writers, anyone working in, within any genre to just start creating artwork and advocacy for the residents and the the workers in long-term care facilities. I really appreciated the way that, like, I got a sense of community from that website and also the articulation of the struggles of people within care homes and needing the care, but also the workers. Um, 
you know, often the workers are sort of left out of a lot of the mainstream media narratives. I mean, it's shifted a bit the last month, but I'd say at the beginning of the pandemic, it wasn't as present. Um, so yeah, that uh, that focus on community and also the that sort of actual, actually at the care homes, that dynamic of the relationship. Why, could you speak a bit more about why that was important for you to talk about? Yeah, I mean, these, I don't think it would surprise anyone that in many ways these are forgotten populations, kind of cast aside. Um, obviously, families, you know, families are focused on this space, but there has long been a problem in long-term care facilities. They are underfunded, which means that the workers are not, you know, they're underpaid. They're understaffed, so so that creates all kinds of problems and has created very unique set of problems in the COVID nineteen pandemic. That that chronic understaffing, yeah, um, because essentially, and this is the case in my, you know, this is true in my father's case as well. His care needs prior to the pandemic the people who were feeding him, they were not from the staff itself. It was volunteers and outside caregivers who, 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 who do a lot of the feeding to kind of cover the gaps in the, the underfunding and understaffing of long-term care facilities. So when, so when the lockdown happened in mid-March, immediately there was this panic amongst all of the family members. Who's going to feed my father? Who's going to feed my mother? Who's going to make sure that they're hydrated? Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this kind of, you know, this, these chronic issues that I really believe are related to casting aside these populations it's deadly. Mm -hmm. Early on, early on in the pandemic, um, and even now, and I, I don't only mean in Montreal. I mean, we're seeing this issue all across the world. There has been a very strong focus on providing for, um, providing for, and supporting the staff, the frontline staff at hospitals. Yep. You know, you see it everywhere, yep. but, but I think somewhere the, the workers and the frontline staff of long-term care facilities were largely forgotten. And so that translates into them not having enough PPE, which is anyways a shortage, but if people don't have them on their minds, then they're not properly protected. Um, and, and there's a very symbiotic relationship between the outbreaks that are taking place in the long-term care facilities and the numbers that are then coming in and overwhelming the hospital systems everywhere. For example, in Canada, it's estimated that 79% of all deaths from COVID-19 are coming from the long-term care facilities. Yep. That's, that's outrageous. This, that's, you know... 
those populations needed to be our number one area of concern and protection because that's where all the, you know, that's where the majority of the deaths are happening. And so it's that, it's that blind spot to those facilities and to those workers and to those residents that I think is largely, um, can be account, you know, is, is part, is a, is a huge contributing factor to our entire crisis. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thank you for laying, laying that out. Um, just finally, I was just wondering if you, uh, I found the website like pretty dynamic. There's a lot of different things going on. If you could just describe it and maybe share the hashtag and where people could go to see the project that you're talking about. Yeah. So primarily the project is an Instagram account. It's called artists for long-term care. That's our handle artists for the number four long-term care. Um, and we also developed a website along with it. Um, the, the website has a, a page of like advocacy points and also resources uh, around this topic. Um, you know, our hope is that the artwork gets used. I have um, I've, I have a folder, a, a Google folder that yes. I'm handing out to um, any kind of advocate that wants the artwork or a, a lot of the artwork. Um, the ones that we have clearance for to just use freely in all of their advocacy work as long as it's non-commercial. Um, I'm getting in touch with a few groups across the states. I would love to get in touch with groups in Montreal and across Canada who do who can print out posters or do wheat pasting of the imagery um, to kind of visualize and get this message out in the public and in the streets. Um, I, there's, there's a lot of different components that I would love to do with this project. Um, and I also, I just really want to mention that, um, this project was started by myself and, uh, the photographer Isadora Kosofsky, who's a close friend of mine, and she's been working in, um, nursing homes since she was a teenager and documenting the plight of the elderly and of the workers and and elderly folks in nursing homes as well. It's really an area of focus for her. Um, and then other people that we have been working with is Amber Terranova from, from Magnum, which is a photography agency. She has also been instrumental in 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 our in our mission nice and we've also been working with um yasine kakande who is a investigative journalist and an immigrant himself and a caregiver and he's he's been instrumental in just understanding more intimately the migrants and immigrant workforce that really does so much of our care of our care work in Canada and in the States as well. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. 
Thank you. Wonderful. Great. So it's artist number four longtermcare.org. That was a discussion I had with photojournalist Kitra Kahana about the campaign Artists for Long-Term Care. I definitely encourage you to check it out. You can find them on Instagram and generally on the internet at Artists for Long-Term Care. That's the hashtag. Do check it out. I think it's a really important campaign. Um, having worked as a caregiver myself, I really connected with this um, campaign, with this effort, especially during this time where the work of caregivers is so very important. Next on the broadcast, I just wanted to uh, feature a piece of music that I love. It's by a composer and musician in Beirut, in Lebanon, named Sharbo Rohana. That's a piece by a musician and composer Sharbo Rohana from his album Traite de Union. Um, 
And continuing on here on the podcast, I wanted to play an interview I did with a uh, poet uh, who has recently published a book of poetry this past year, Mohammed Kebar, who has published a book of poetry on his country, Syria, and um, reflections on uh, identity and on the war that has been happening in Syria and uh, what that means for also the diaspora. Uh, Mohammed's book uh, was published uh, with Jack Pine Press uh, that's based in Saskatchewan. Uh, You can find out uh, information if you just search it online. Uh, The book is called The Soap of Aleppo. So this is uh, the discussion I had with Mohammed. I went back to Syria in 2017, in October. And uh, I stayed here. I was like uh, in the phase of uh, writing and taking pictures and so on. It was just uh, profound to go back to my city uh, after the war, after the destruction. And um, yeah, and I stayed here. So you've been really like since returning you've really entered into a creative space i have and uh, it was a mixture between griefing and a creative space um so there's all there's in the beginning it was fear of going to the old city and uh, at first it was just happy to be in my hometown but also feeling the excitement of you know being in a place where battles took place, like literally underneath my feet. And then it was, you know, the fear of going to the old city and then overcoming that fear. And I took a series of walks in the old city. Wow. And then I would go back to my, uh, to my office and record my first impressions. And that ended up being uh, an essay, which should be published soon. And yeah, and then kind of life takes on its own course. And, you know, I I visited some relatives and uh, just uh, had a few clients and just keep on going. So it it feels like returning for you was, I mean, a huge change for you personally, but also like as the city uh, has, you know, entered a new chapter. I mean, it's never going to be the same, but Aleppo is moving into a new space. I mean, how has it been to see this shift? It's really sad because the, you know, I am, you know, I'm, uh, I'm fond of history and the old city for sure. And that space will never be the same. You know, I don't know how genius the reconstruction will be but it doesn't feel like it can bring it back. I've seen a couple of mosques, uh, you know, restored, and you could see the difference in color between the old stones and the new stones. Wow. And that to me is a constant reminder of war. So, and most of the destroyed places are still, you know, on the ground. And it, there hasn't been any um, any international effort to reconstruct the city uh, because the war is still, you know, is still going in a very strange way, and nobody knows, you know, the future 
of Syria and definitely the future of Aleppo. When you think about the future of Syria, you must must also think about the future of yourself and your family. Yes, you know, I think um, it's it's uh, it's very unsettling to not know where this country is going to. But uh, I think the nature of wars uh, keep you in your own hole in the sense that all you care about is food and shelter. And as the currency is diving ever more, like today, $1 equals 1,700 lira, which at the beginning of the war, it was only 50 lira equals $1. Wow. Yeah, so the numbers are like skyrocketing and and it's just, um, it's like inconsistency everywhere. At the same time, it's spring. Yeah, it's spring, but uh, we've had lo- the longest spring uh, in human history. That is the, the Arabian Spring. And uh, it's just uh, sad and... Uh, it's it's uh, it's even more challenging for me because, you know, what I do is not important to most people here. What do you mean? Like, as a poet, as a mm-hmm. creative person, they say, like, I mean, they look at me and they say, nice, you know, but they say, like, you know, like, uh, is this really, like, what you do? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So it's really, it's really strange. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here in Montreal with your book. It's called The Soap of Aleppo. Um, so, yes. Mohammed, could you tell us a bit about, about this project? So, um, I mean, this project began as a kind of... Uh, I was like, you know, bored one night and I went to a spoken word event in Calgary and I saw this really ordinary citizens, you know, reading their poems about their relationships, about growing up, about uh, coming of age. And I saw these beautiful poems, and I, I I wanted to do something similar. And I asked for the rules, and they said, you know, you can have three minutes and write any poem you want, and, uh, and you can have it. And so I wrote my first poem, because I remember... Um, was Canada Day on 2013, and uh, the reception was really amazing, and the creative uh, community in Calgary was very open and uh, supportive, and so I went to that uh, venue every month. So it took place uh, the last Monday of every month, mm-hmm. and and every month I wrote a poem, and they told me. Well, Mohammed, you've you've come here for many times. You should like publish your poems. Wow! I'm like, what publishing? I don't know anything about this. And, and so they said, no, nah, just Google it, and you'll find a magazine that takes your uh, work. And eventually, um, out of 26 magazines, one said, uh, "Congratulations, we'll take your work," and just send us the electronic copy. And it was the Nashwalk Review. In New Brunswick. Okay. And and I was like on the university news uh, website and so on. So and then every you know then I dedicated more time to writing poems and eventually it became a chapbook. 
and it's it's beautiful. I love the style um, of of the chapbook, and uh, also the poetry. I mean, there's there's many different um, different poems. Um, one one that really um, struck me was a poem where you talk about Aleppo, your city, and an experience you had at an immigration agent. Um, or with an immigration agent in, in Boston. It's called yes. Mind the Gap. Can you maybe yes. uh, tell us about that poem? Yes. Um, it was, uh, you know, I was, it was, my sister used to live there. And so I was visiting her. And uh, and the, the immigration officer was kind of, you know, really chatty, which is unusual. And he said, uh, he looked at my birthplace on the passport and he said, Aleppo, that's, you're so far away from home. And I said, yes. And we started talking about uh, U.S. politics and uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East. And he said, uh, you know, if you were, if you had oil, we'd be there from day one. But, and he was really genuine and he was like kind of ashamed of uh, U.S. politics. Okay. And. And so, so it was great. And I, I remember, you know, uh, when I lived uh, abroad in Canada, I would remember my friends. So I called up this Armenian friend of mine, and we talked about history and culture, and and all that is destroyed. Yeah, I I, I noticed you m mentioned the landscape of the city of Aleppo. Of course, you know it's a multicultural. Uh, a city historically with Jewish, uh, Muslim, and Christian communities. Also, a city of art and cuisine. Um, right. And uh, you know, it really was uh, an important city historically, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I I thought um, it was really striking to hear this uh, these words in your poem of this um, immigration agent. <laughs> And, you know, and, and how he seemed probably not very aware of the rich history of Aleppo, or maybe he was, I'm not sure. Probably not, but he, I'm, I'm sure he's aware of uh, the U.S. policy in the Middle East and how failed it is, and it was. Uh, so it was very, you know, rare occurrence that I come into a conversation with uh, you know, anyone in the airport, you know, especially... Uh, you know, immigration officer. So it's, you know, you know, which is a leeway into my writing process. I think of poems as a kind of frozen moments in history. Okay. And, and uh, you know, poetry versus short story or a novel is a poem always, uh, you know, it demands itself to be written and it can have it can be very structured or have no structure at all. And whereas a short story or a novel has to have a narrative and has to go somewhere and the beginning and the middle and the end has to make sense. Whereas a poem can be really free. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and, uh, mm -hmm. and I just want to talk about uh, the, the bookmaking which is uh, which I was glad to be published by Japan Press. Yes, and, please. And I mean, they are um, they are you know one of the best uh, book publishers in Canada, 
and the the designer um, wanted to have uh, the package, the cover of the book, as a kind of a letter. If you notice the the way the the yeah. book closes with the strap and everything, it it looks like you know an envelope in like back in the days, and so they want it to be like a letter, like my letter to the world or my letter to my readers. And um, and they chose the, the gray uh, paper uh, as a kind of uh, resemblance to the rubble. And wow. you'll see okay. pi- pictures uh, on the side in a pocket. Uh, it's kind of like visible and invisible at the same time. And mm-hmm. it's uh, hand printed, and uh, so they they did incredible job. Yeah, it's it's just beautiful, and also knowing you and having spoken with you in Montreal, it's all that much more meaningful. Um, so thank th- you, thank you, Mohammed, so much for talking with us about your book, The Soap of Aleppo. Um, and uh, I guess people can find out more information about that through Jack Pine Press. Uh, I'll include. Yes. Yep. Jackpinepress.com. Great. And, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, interviewing me. It's been great to get to know you and your music. And thank you for reading my book. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. That is the discussion I had with poet Mohamed Kibar, who published a book of poetry um, called The Soap of Aleppo. Uh, Do check it out. You can find it online. Just search it, The Soap of Aleppo. It's through Jack Pine Press in Saskatchewan. Beautiful book of poetry. Next, I wanted to um, feature a segment from a podcast that some friends of mine are working on, including uh, Sophie Chartre. This is a podcast that looks at uh, the realities right now within Quebec's prisons in the context of the pandemic. Uh, cette section de cette podcast ici sur les zones de Free City Radio, c'est en français. C'est une uh, section de nouveau podcast faire par mon amie Sophie Chartres. C'est dans les réalités dans les prisons maintenant à Québec, dans le contexte de la uh, pandémie. Uh, c'est quoi les situations pour les prisonniers uh, dans ce contexte? Uh, c'est clair, c'est, c'est pas um, une belle situation maintenant dans les prisons. Et beaucoup de prisonniers aussi faire des grèves de faim contre les uh, situations santé dans les prisons. Et euh, moi, juste euh, sélecter une section de ce podcast faire par Sophie et quelques camarades pour illustrer les, les luttes, en fait, pour les droits et les droits de santé maintenant dans les prisons de Québec. Et, euh, et oui, les podcasts s'appelaient « Prison, punition et contagion ». Mais c'est la première édition, en fait. Euh, c'est un podcast sorti par groupe Stasis. C'est sur l'Internet à groupstasis.com uh, ça c'est un, un excerpt en fait de uh, les podcasts euh, ok ben peut-être euh, Madame Le Monde pour commencer euh, si vous voulez vous, euh, vous présenter rapidement là. oui euh, en fait j'ai commencé ma carrière là, je suis en plaisir comme avocate et j'ai fait du droit carcéral euh, dès le départ, euh, à une époque où cette expression n'existait tout simplement pas, là, parce que les personnes incarcérées étaient perçues comme des êtres sans droit. Mm-hmm. Donc, on a créé, si je peux dire, un peu cette euh, branche du droit. On a commencé avec euh, des causes importantes, notamment la, 
le droit de vote des détenus, le droit d'être traité équitablement dans les décisions qui sont prises, etc. Donc, j'ai pratiqué par la suite, euh, j'ai, je suis retourné aux études, euh, fait mon doctorat sur l'émergence et l'impact euh, des droits des détenus. Et euh, je suis maintenant professeur au département des sciences juridiques à l'UCAM et je donne entre autres le cours de droit carcéral. Parallèlement à ça, euh, je suis membre actif de la Ligue des droits et libertés, qui est un organisme euh, de pression euh, qui peut être c'est véritablement un organisme de pression sur l'interdépendance des droits. Donc, c'est un rôle très important dans la société québécoise. Je pense que la Ligue a joué. Et récemment, euh, on a recommencé à s'occuper de la question des droits des personnes incarcérées, entre autres lors de la fermeture de la maison tranquille, la prison pour femmes et leur déménagement euh, dans un ancien pénitentiaire fédéral, mmh. euh, le Leclerc à Laval. Et vraiment des conditions de détention euh, déplorables, euh, violation des droits fondamentaux euh, des femmes, les fouilles à nu, il euh, n'y a pas d'eau potable entre l'enfer. Et euh, donc, on a recommencé à s'intéresser à cette question-là à la Ligue. Et depuis, euh, on est intervenu aussi beaucoup depuis euh, euh, l'apparition de la pandémie. On a fait plusieurs actions. Euh, réclamer le respect des droits des personnes incarcérées pendant cette période-là. Mais donc, à la, à la Ligue des droits et libertés, comme vous dites, c'est ça, là, vous vous êtes réintéressé un peu à ces dossiers-là, mais c'est pas euh, seulement sur les droits des détenus. Non, 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 T'sais, on a plusieurs euh, dossiers, euh, les principaux en ce moment, c'est autour de liberté d'expression, droit de manifester, on a, dans lequel on était très actifs euh, sur... Euh, la police aussi, euh, la, la question du bureau des enquêtes indépendantes, mm -hmm. on, on est intervenu beaucoup sur cette question-là, en tout cas sur diverses questions, les droits des peuples autochtones, les droits économiques et sociaux, euh, etc. Donc ça, c'est juste un aspect, mais qu'au départ, la Ligue, il y avait un, un comité qui s'appelait l'Office des droits des détenus, qui euh, n'existait plus comme tel, et euh, c'est pour ça qu'il y a eu comme un arrêt du travail autour des prisons, mais qui a repris, je dirais, depuis 2016. Dans le contexte actuel de, de coronavirus, ouais. euh, qu'est-ce que c'est la, la situation au Québec dans les prisons? Je vais commencer peut-être par expliquer un peu les démarches qu'on a faites depuis, parce que ça va être expliqué après mm -hmm. euh, la situation actuelle. Nous, euh, la Ligue et d'autres groupes par la suite, euh, l'Association des avocats et avocates en droit carcéral, euh, Alter Justice et d'autres, on a commencé, on a demandé entre autres, euh, euh, c'est-à-dire qu'on a, on, on a estimé que la seule façon de réduire le risque pour les détenus et pour les, les, le personnel également, euh, c'était de réduire la population carcérale. Parce que, évidemment, la, la prison, comme le CHSLD, finalement aussi, euh, c'est des endroits où la distanciation physique est impossible, ou presque. Mmh. Euh, c'est euh, des lieux surpeuplés, des gens avec euh, d'hygiène douteuse. Donc, c'est vraiment un terreau fertile là, pour qu'il y ait une propagation très rapide et incontrôlée. Mmh. Alors, pour nous, la seule façon, c'était de réduire la population carcérale en disant de, de cette façon-là, il y a plus d'espace. Euh, 
etc. Donc, on, puis on peut plus garantir l'accès à des soins de santé euh, de la même qualité que ceux offerts à la population en général. Mm -hmm. Alors, pour nous, de réduire la population carcérale, ça voulait dire de libérer euh, les détenus. Alors, on a euh, identifié une catégorie, des catégories de détenus dont la libération ne mettrait pas du tout en danger la sécurité publique. On pourrait aller plus loin, mais on s'est dit on va commencer par ça. Donc, les détenus âgés, les détenus malades, euh, plus vulnérables à attraper le virus, euh, les femmes enceintes, les femmes, les personnes enceintes en pensent. Euh, comme par exemple, il y a une femme de conjointe de détenue qui m'a téléphoné cette semaine pour me dire que son mari devait sortir le 7 mai. Mais pourquoi pas le sortir tout de suite le mm -hmm. 7 mai, ça ne fera pas une grande différence. Euh, les, toutes les personnes aussi dans les prisons provinciales, il y a 78 des gens qui sont là en attente de procès. Donc, ils n'ont pas été encore condamnés, ils n'ont pas eu leur procès. Et souvent, la détention avant procès, c'est pas lié à la gravité du crime commis, mais uniquement à la capacité financière de payer le cautionnement. Mm -hmm. Alors, c'est vraiment la, la prison des pauvres, là, si on peut dire. Alors, euh, tout, ça aussi, on demandait la libération des personnes incar euh, incarcérées en attente de procès. On demandait aussi la libération des personnes qui font des sentences de fin de semaine. Alors, évidemment, ils ne sont pas dangereux. Ils sont les ressorts qui euh, dimanche soir. C'est pour, euh, pour la protection de la société, en tout cas. Alors, ça, c'était nos principales demandes. On demandait aussi l'autre chanson de réduire la population carcérale, c'était de limiter le nombre euh, de nouvelles admissions. Donc, euh, euh, les juges, justement, n'exigent pas de cautionnement dans des crimes là, euh, qui sont pas violents, entre autres. Tout ça pour dire qu'on pourrait aussi aller plus loin et dire jamais, mais on voulait que ce soit des choses qui passent quand même pour régler la situation mmh. urgente. Là. Parce qu'actuellement, euh, euh, il continue à avoir des gens qui, euh, qui reçoivent des sentences d'emprisonnement, même en temps Oui, c'est ça, mmh. ça. Alors, euh, donc, la seule réaction concrète, officielle, qu'on a eue de la part du provincial, j'explique en deux secondes pour le, le monde, les personnes condamnées à moins de deux ans sont incarcérées dans une prison provinciale. Donc, c'est les prisons. Et les personnes condamnées à plus de deux ans, c'est dans les pénitentiaires fédéraux. OK. Alors, euh, de la part donc du provincial, où la situation est, est plus à risque parce que c'est vraiment surpeuplé, il y a du va-et-vient, les sentences données sont très courtes, une euh, moyenne de deux mois et demi. Alors, euh, il y a du va-et-vient beaucoup, mm -hmm. puis euh, les conditions d'hygiène sont... Euh, il y a des vieilles, 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 vieilles prisons, là, à Sherbrooke, à Valleyfield, en tout cas un peu partout. Et euh, donc, la seule réponse positive qu'on a eue, c'est qu'ils ont suspendu les peines de fin de semaine, qu'on appelle les peines discontinues. Okay. Pour le reste, il n'y a pas eu d'annonce <coughs> officielle. Ce qu'on entend par les branches, là, où euh, c'est très difficile de vérifier ça, parce qu'évidemment, c'est un monde fermé, euh, la possibilité règne, si je peux dire. Il y a très peu d'informations qui sortent euh, de derrière les, les murs. Euh, ce qu'on a entendu, c'est qu'il y a des choses qui sont faites à la pièce selon les, euh, les endroits. Comme là, j'ai su ce matin par le, le groupe Stella, mm -hmm qui habituellement vont faire des, des ateliers euh, au Leclerc, là, ou au Pénitentiaire de Joliette pour les femmes, c'est qu'il y a plus de libération 
que d'habitude. Mais on ne sait pas, on ne sait rien. Là. Justement, mm -hmm. on dit ça un peu dans les airs. Il y a une femme aussi d'une conjointe qui nous a dit que son mari lui avait dit que dans son secteur, il avait libéré des détenus qui toussaient. OK. Et, et des détenus euh, plus âgés. Ce qu'on sait aussi, c'est que... <coughs> Une prison provinciale, ça doit être la même chose dans les pénitentiaires fédéraux. C'est que les, les, euh, la tension est très, 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 très vive. Euh, les détenus ont peur, mm -hmm. ils ne rien. Euh, quand il y en a un qui tousse, euh, les autres sont agressifs par rapport à lui. Il y a beaucoup plus d'interventions avec recours à la force. Euh, à cause de. C'est une situation vraiment euh, explosive, là, qui, ça pourrait arriver n'importe quand. Okay. Et on ne on sait rien. Alors, on s'est adressé au gouvernement, ministre de la Santé, ministre de la Sécurité publique, contre euh, la protectrice du citoyen. Euh, Qu'est-ce qu'on a fait, en tout cas? Puis, on n'a pas de réponse, euh, jamais, à toutes nos, nos demandes. Euh, non, c'est ça, les comme, informations que vous venez de... Donc, c'est vraiment... Tandis que le fédéral, lui, euh, il publie sur le site des services correctionnels à tous les, euh, des comptes quotidiens du nombre de tests faits, du nombre de tests positifs. Euh, euh, etc. Là, donc, on peut vraiment plus savoir, c'est beaucoup plus euh, transparent que ça ne l'est euh, au provincial. Mm -hmm. Est-ce que vous inquiétez plus pour la situation euh, des gens au ben, provincial? On s'inquiète plus parce que, bon, premièrement, c'est moins transparent, comme je l'ai dit. Mm -hmm. Ensuite, c'est beaucoup plus surpeuplé. Puis, comme je disais, il y a beaucoup plus de va-et-vient. Donc, euh, ça risque euh, d'être plus grave. Mm -hmm. Ensuite, on a entendu que le, le, dans les prison provinciale, on a créé euh, ou mis sur pied des ailes de quarantaine pour les nouveaux ennemis. Je me demande bien où ce qu'ils ont mis, puis euh, tout ça, c'est surpeuplé déjà. Euh, comment ça va faire euh, au point de vue de protection? Euh, on a entendu qu'il n'y avait même pas de masque dans les cuisines, euh, euh, même que les, les gardiens n'en portaient pas, etc. Donc, euh, ça nous apparaît très dangereux. Ça, c'est une section d'un podcast. Euh, les premiers podcasts de les groupes Stasis euh, à Montréal. Le podcast, les premières éditions s'appelait Prison, Punition et Contagion. Et euh, c'est ça la réalité dans les prisons de Québec. C'est clair maintenant, beaucoup de gens font les grèves de faim. Beaucoup de gens luttent pour les droits euh, pour les prisonniers. Euh, maintenant, au Québec, euh, les prisonniers qui ont fait dans les dangers, euh, maintenant dans le contexte de la pandémie globale qui certainement touchait Montréal, Québec et aussi les prisons. Euh, merci Sophie pour cette collaboration podcast sur les ondes de Free City Radio Podcast. Uh, that was a podcast uh, from my friend uh, Sophie Chartres. Uh, who works with the group Stasis. Uh, you can find them online at groupstasis.com. It's from a podcast they put out about the uh, realities right now in Quebec's prisons. And I wanted to share a section of that podcast um, here on Free City Radio. And following up from that, I just wanted to play a track from a hip-hop artist based in Montreal, a friend, Narcy. This is from his album, World War Free. Never in this world, never in this world, never in this world.
like a symphony So I hear light when I'm picking beat Where were you when we had the epiphany? No justice, no victory The apple of the living tree Shit, everybody gotta eat Who will survive? Her or me? For there to be more peace on World War Free. Maybe will you follow me? If the devil was to collar me If the earth was to swallow me Or this life take all of me Lady, my apologies Your company is misery Living comfortably is not the window history So what are you envisioning? Is anybody listening? That was a track by Narsi uh, from his album World War Free. Look out uh, right now online, Narsi. Uh, you can find a recent album that he's released. I encourage you to check it out. Next here on Free City Radio, I wanted to play a discussion I had with investigative data journalist Roberto Rocha, uh, who works at CBC. And I thought this was really important because uh, it addresses the issue of the importance of public access to government data and uh, statistics uh, for not only uh, healthcare workers and uh, epidemiologists, but also um, um, political commentators, journalists, and the public at large. Uh, 
really addressing the issue of the importance of transparency in the context of the pandemic. So this is a discussion that we had. The problem is that it's very sometimes very hard to get good public records for many reasons. Either um, either uh, there's no interest in releasing it because uh, people don't want to get embarrassed and um, powerful people don't want to get embarrassed. Um, or maybe just because there are no processes in place to make that information easily and readily, readily available uh, because of like, you know, technological hurdles, because of like uh, cultural, um, sort of cultural barriers within government agencies that, you know, don't really want to be transparent or don't have the, uh, uh, the knowledge and the skills to make this stuff transparent. So, yeah, sometimes you just have to fight for it. Yeah, I, I guess, could you expand on that a bit more? Um, you talked about culture, but I mean, one thing has been, I mean, culture within government, uh, but one thing that has been pretty clear in terms of this pandemic is transparency is important. I, I'm just wondering if you could speak a bit more to that as somebody who relies on numbers for their work as an investigative data journalist. Sure, and I'm going to keep the scope to Canada because, you know, that's where I work and that's the kind of data I work with. Sure. Um, Canada is a funny case because, um, I mean, if you compare Canada to some other countries like the U.S., like the U.K., um, where uh, data is a lot easier to get, it's a lot more forthcoming, uh, you start wondering why. Uh, there is a, a bit of a culture of, uh, like a paternalistic culture in Canada of, uh, you know, saying like, oh, uh, we know what we're doing, we're going to protect you, we're the, you know, we're the, we're the... Um, we're the the kind benevolent state that you know they protect people from themselves, but also Canadians have a high trust in the government, right? And this creates a problem where uh, there there isn't very much um, sort of like the public doesn't challenge the government very strongly to be more transparent, to be more forthcoming. The way they do in countries where the role of government is constantly being questioned. Right in the U.S., it's constantly being questioned. The U.K. Uh, a, a, a bit more than here, so that those are um, incentives for uh, more transparency. There's also a problem that Canada is a highly decentralized federation, and if you want to get uh, information for the whole country, you basically have to um, go to, you know, all the provinces and territories to get that. And they all have their own different ways of um, collecting data, of storing data, and of publishing data. And it can be a lot, a lot of work, very expensive to do this, and it can be discouraging to a lot of journalists. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I think that the public perception is very different from what you're describing. Um, so in the context of your reporting right now, um, I'm just wondering if you could outline why accessing that data and also the public sharing of government health data is important. Well, transparency is good for public trust, right? Um, uh, when, you, when you hide things, when you tell people, you know, oh, you don't have to know that, oh, this is personal information, this is sensitive information, you are basically saying uh, we don't trust you. And you're just making it worse because you're making people more suspicious. Like, what are you hiding? Right? What are you trying to hide? It doesn't be like you, people don't just don't go, oh, you, okay, you, you probably know what's best. 
I'll just uh, I'll just keep my mouth shut then. So that's one. Uh, second thing, transparency. It, um, data just helps. Um, you know, uh, good data helps evidence-based decisions, right? Whether it's policymaking, different government agencies using data to inform policy. It helps academics do better research and it helps journalists better inform the public about what's really going on. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so in terms of what you've been doing uh, as a journalist, can you maybe just point to a few reports or some information that you've been working on regarding the pandemic, which is how I, I've, I was seeing your work recently, um, of some, some things that you feel are important to share? Uh, well, the uh, the pandemic is uh, really um, shining a light on all these data sharing problems within Canada, right? And this whole idea of the of mortality is really is a really good example of that. Um, first of all, it's important to understand that counting the people the number of deaths due to COVID nineteen is incredibly tricky. There's a lot of problems with that, right? To get an accurate count because um, we don't know how a, a COVID-related death is being defined. Is it someone who dies in the hospital of COVID-19? Are people who die at home um, counted? Right, probably not. Um, are people, um, is it only people who have tested positive for the virus and then died? What about all the, all, all the deaths that are caused indirectly by COVID-19, but not by the virus, right? Let's say people have a stroke or a heart attack and they don't go to the hospital because they're, you know, they're afraid of uh, not, uh, the ER, they're afraid of getting infected, so they die at home, right? Th th this is all incredibly hard to quantify. So a, another way to try to get a closer idea of the true death toll of the pandemic are total deaths and compare that to the normal level of deaths in previous years. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of countries have been doing. That's what a lot of in, in really interesting analysis have been doing to get the real, real picture here of the, of the death toll. Uh, it's very hard to get that in Canada because uh, uh, we only have uh, the death, uh, death counts every year for the whole country, only for the whole year. But that's useless. We need to know by, by day or by week at most, right? And we never had that in Canada. So Statistics Canada, which is a, you know, it's a very well-run organization, I have nothing, um, uh, nothing against them, uh, but they're working within this very decentralized, dysfunctional system of communication where provinces, um, you know, there is no really good system where they um, report data to each other in a consistent way. Sometimes they do by fax. Sometimes they, they, they send paper records. Sometimes it's electronically. Uh, some provinces just didn't report at all. Like there's no death data for Ontario, the most populous province in Canada. This is, this is absurd. Um, so, so we don't know. Right now, we don't know what is the true death toll of the, of the pandemic in Canada. Like we're like, two months in, and we still don't know. Wow. While other countries have their shit together. In terms of follow-up, um, I just, I, I, 
to, I'll just be honest with you. When seeing your report, the first thing that came to mind was what had happened. Uh, it's almost a decade ago now when the previous conservative government under Harper had moved to cut the census. Um, I realize you're talking about more specific, not even yearly information, but month by month information in regards to deaths in the country and how that's important right now. Um, but I'm just wondering, uh, just as a journalist, if you had any uh, final comments about the broader importance of sustaining public information and, and, and I mean, thanks for the specific critiques. Um, but yeah, just in general, uh, both how this affects your work and how it's important for society. Yeah, well, the census is a good example, too, because um, when they cut the long form, right, um, and it, be it became a, uh, a, an optional thing, the, um, the rate of response was so small in certain places that it was unusable. So you just, it was, it was too small a sample size. So you couldn't really say for some places whether those numbers were really true or not. A lot of researchers say we can't use these numbers. We can't tell uh, what is the socioeconomic uh, situation in some of these places because it's too unreliable. So, you know, that, 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 um, that hurts uh, good policymaking. That hurts maybe some health researchers, maybe some, um, you know, people who work to, you know, um, in areas that try to, you know, correct for inequalities, mm -hmm. um, that hurts their, their jobs a lot. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure, no problem. Cool. That was a discussion I had with investigative data journalist Roberto Rocha, who works at CBC, and I thought it was really important to highlight his voice. I do think, uh, as we heard now in the discussion, um, that uh, it is very important to look at uh, the importance of access to data uh, health information statistics from the government, from healthcare infrastructure, um, public institutions at this time, uh, really focusing on the issue of transparency. Next on the podcast, I wanted to uh, feature a poem by my friend Mojen Bezadi, who is an art curator um, and a poet in Montreal, and Mojen uh, shared this piece. Uh, really excited to share it with you here on Free City Radio. The Corruption of a Sexy Line Sometimes I read poems and I can't distinguish them from the Instagram influencer's hashtag ad about oat milk. The substance of this craft did not escape the grabby hands of the system. We supply the machinery feeding it raw data chewed up and spit out for our scrolling thumbs to deliver to our eyes, frying our brains with their corrupted minerals designed to erode our ability to scream. Smartphones might just be Big Pharma's greatest accomplishment in short-circuiting our attempts to escape this loop. Reality's reality is under siege, and poets' prophecies are asking for amnesty. That was a poem by poet and art curator Mojen Bazadi, uh, who uh, has been uh, sharing works publicly uh, at different events around Montreal this past year, and also works as an art curator at Artext uh, in downtown Montreal. So do uh, check out uh, her work. Um, I really encourage you to do so. 
And I wanted to share an audio letter that I got from my friend Sarah Textira, uh, who is right now in Europe. And uh, she uh, shared an audio letter for the podcast Free City Radio. I thought that it would be really nice to hear um, more personal notes from people in different parts of the world on how they're feeling um, at this time, what it's been like to um, to uh, live this pandemic in different parts of the world. And Sarah has um, lived in Montreal for years. Uh, I know her through the arts community and also worked with Cinema Politica. Right now in Europe, she's been be between Amsterdam and also in Portugal during this time. So I thought it was really important to um, share uh, Sarah's reflections here on Free City Radio. Hi, this is Sarah. I'm in Amsterdam. And it's been about six weeks since the Dutch Prime Minister announced the plan here, which is um, the plan for herd immunity. So that means that we've been asked to employ social distancing and to stay home as much as possible and some things have closed. But other than that, I find it is creepily normal here. The current and most strict measures include things like we can't go out in public in groups larger than three which excludes children, even children from other families. Um, wearing face masks is optional and not very popular. And pretty much by and large, and based on conversations that I've been having with others here, it does seem like the situation is not being taken all that seriously. The medical system is overwhelmed, but that information is not being publicized very much. I think I read something like less than 1% of the population has been tested here. And people, um, particularly the elderly, are being encouraged to stay home, essentially feeling like they're being encouraged to die at home. The mortality rate has really skyrocketed here by all measures, but very few deaths are being classified as being related to COVID-19. Um, up until recently, I had a job in hospitality and was counted among essential workers and felt really unsafe going to work every day and exposing myself to tons of people every day in this climate where the goal is to infect as much of the population as possible in the hopes that we all recover and become immune to this virus. People are still partying here, coffee shops are still open, restaurants are still open if they can do takeaway. So that didn't feel very good, and I continued for a while, but reached a point where I ended up taking the rest of my vacation days that I had amassed, and I felt very fortunate to be able to do that so that I could stay home and stay out of that environment, which felt relatively high risk. Um, since then, I found other work that I can do from home, which is a very big privilege since I still have friends and former colleagues who are still having to be out in public every day in that capacity. That said, I am seeing the situation in Quebec where I'm from, and there seems to be a much more, I'll say, socialist approach here to people who've lost their income. Not everyone has received government financial aid, but lots and lots of people have work contracts and salaries are being honored even if people can't go to work. Um, so that has been positive for sure, but there's been a really strange framing of the impact on the homeless population here, for example. 
because again, this is set up in a very different way than what I'm used to coming from North America, where there's a huge number of shelters and more permanent accommodations here for people who could use that. But then there's this kind of spin on the narrative where the common attitude is that this is therefore not a social problem, which I find is quite dangerous. Since people have a place to go, it's made the issue much less visible up until this point, at least from my perspective here in the city center in Amsterdam. But now many of the smaller shelters have had to close completely since they don't have the space to implement safe social distancing. So people have been left without many options. Um, but I mean, now we can see each other. Huge tourist hubs in the city are empty of their tourists at least and have been more or less occupied by people who, who have to have access to that space and don't have the luxury of being able to self-isolate at home. There are many, many municipalities that have ramped up night care in light of this, but people are still pretty much kicked out in the morning and left to fend for themselves until the shelters open back up again the following night. And there is a police presence on the streets and many, many accessible places are closed until some new solutions present itself. So there is this, this, undercutting of the of the attitude that everyone has been taken care of in light of the light measures that have been implemented here. Of course, people without status here are in a similarly tricky position. For those who can't access a lot of these relief services and resources that are within reach for so many others, which to me has been a bit surprising because there is a very rich history here of a squatting movement and other radical movements, but it sort of is beginning to seem like because there was progress reached and there were these semi-socialist measures implemented largely that people are kind of unwilling to engage and talk about the situation and its inequalities and shortcomings in this context and are just doubling down on this stiff upper lip neoliberal mentality that was already very strong here. And it then sort of feels like the implication is that other people's well-being is up for negotiation. And it feels very weird because things look normal here. Like you could, I don't know, if you crawled out from under a rock, it could almost seem like nothing's happening here. But you look at the map and the Netherlands has been read on the map for a long time and seems like the rest of the world knew up until really recently that this herd immunity idea is a bad idea and trying to control without trying to contain doesn't work. But now I'm seeing what's happening elsewhere and back home where people really did know that to be true, but now things are reopening prematurely and it feels even more wrong somehow. And generally it feels, I mean, strange here, like it feels strange everywhere, but really feels bizarre since I have family spread out over a few countries. I have friends and family members in forced quarantine. And meanwhile, I can go to the park and have a picnic if I want to. And I've been able to do that this whole time. So I can't really complain about my situation beyond that. I've not been too drastically directly affected. I have outdoor space at home so I can go outside and feel okay. I've been able to video chat with my friends and family in other parts of the world pretty much every day. Um, I was speaking to someone 
who I met here actually, who described herself as feeling skin hungry, skin hungry. And I thought it was a pretty perfect description of one way that one could feel right now. So I like that quite a bit, skin hungry. And for all my critical feelings towards how it's being handled here, there are definitely regional differences in some parts of the country where people are kind of ignoring the national policy and trying to get people to stay home and stay healthy. I've been here for almost a year and I finally met my neighbors and had conversations with my neighbors because of all of this in a place that had been feeling a little bit alienating. Otherwise, people are still definitely scared but it seems like people are trying to come together. Unfortunately, largely that means that physically they are still coming together, but... Um, so that's my perspective of what it's like here, that it is very serious and being under-discussed how serious it is, but is not serious enough that everyone should stop or seriously reevaluate some of the mechanisms here. I hope that everyone will be okay and that everyone can be okay and that people are staying safe here and elsewhere. And I'm hoping that I get to cross borders again soon and see my loved ones whenever that becomes possible. So that's it. Take care. Stay healthy. That was Sarah Textira, uh, who is right now in Europe. Um, and she uh, shared with us an audio letter. I've been trying to reach out to friends in different parts of the world uh, for them to share what it's been like uh, at different times, uh, especially right now in the context of the pandemic and share their voices here on uh, Free City Radio. And finally, on the broadcast today, I wanted to uh, feature an interview with a nurse who works in an ICU unit in Ottawa. And... Um, uh, hear her perspective on what the pandemic has looked like uh, and also the struggles of healthcare workers at this time. Um, and um, I know uh, this healthcare worker, Caroline Horton, through different uh, activist, community activist initiatives in the city. Um, and uh, I, wanted to I wanted to share our discussion here on Free City Radio. So I work in a cardiac surgical ICU. Okay. So we just... We're still running because we still do some. We just still do cardiac surgery. We've cut down maybe just 25, 30 percent. Um, but uh, we only had our first COVID patient last week, mm -hmm. and like they're in their own section. We don't see the nurses who work with them. It's all blocked off and everything. So we're we're pretty lucky because we're a specialized, like a doubly specialized ICU. So we would be the last place to get any patients because we need to stay open for heart surgery so i mean in general are there stresses on the medical system like that you're seeing i mean not only at your hospital but in general around the fact that i mean there are the regular crises you know that that people have i mean what all sorts of illness but also operations yeah um is this stressing in general, the public health care system, you think? I mean, I, I'm sure that this is the case in some places. I think it's not. I think the stressors are, are different than what most people think they are. Like at first, like everyone else 
in like the the rules and like the protocols were changing literally three or four times a day um and you very much got the sense that like the protocols were changing based on what was available to us like in terms of ppe and, and beds and stuff as opposed to what is best practice for patients and, and staff and that was stressful at first you also like we also didn't know what was going to happen it could like it could have been horrible or it could have been nothing um but now it's more like everyone has just settled into this sort of like new normal and everyone assumes that we're like things are just being taken care of so um the stresses i think sometimes depending on the city you're in and how your city's doing are sometimes worse on the people who have other health problems other than COVID um, that aren't able to get their care or that aren't sure if they're going to get their care or are worried about getting their care in a hospital that's that's infectious. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, well, and, I mean, but I think the stresses are completely different depending on where you are. Like I have two jobs. One is in the ICU and the other one is at a safe injection site. I haven't been able to go to my second job for over two months now. Um, but I read the emails every single day and their stresses are so much higher and so much worse. They have less money, less funding, less support, more clients and more vulnerabilities. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, the underlying social, economic, racial inequities in our society, like, really speak to how COVID's impacting different communities? Oh, for sure. Like with my other job at the safe injection site, um, I mean, technically we've been in an opioid crisis for like two years now. So when COVID started happening and a lot of people sort of like, you think about yourself and your family first and what's going to happen to you and your job and stuff. So working at the hospital, all the nurses were concerned about that and like, are they going to get sick? Do they need to live somewhere else? Do they need to do that? But then my other group of coworkers that work at the safe injection site, or this is not just safe injection, they do outreach, they work with homeless people, they do food banks, things like that. Um, like their problems are just like, they already had it worse and now it's so much worse for them and just little things that people don't off. Um, so when I talk to like my coworkers, right, I'm, cause even though I'm not allowed to, to work at my other job, I do sort of remotely do things. So I'm trying to like source things for them or organize things for them because they're already busy. Um, like it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to explain it other than like whatever was doing badly is just doing worse. And uh, I don't, I think it's, it's, it's good in a way because it's made it more apparent that like you sort of can't deny that like elderly care and home care and like social welfare hasn't been doing well in the first place. Um, but it's really, it's, it's hard for people to, to, to give a shit when it doesn't affect them directly, I think, sometimes. But, I mean, and do you think that there's any sense of the fact that, you know, well, if in this type of situation, I mean, theoretically, if our healthcare system is not working in general, mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to affect everybody because the ability to control a pandemic is lessened. Yeah, 
I just think when you look at like who's dying, they are already people that have been devalued by society, either elderly people or sick people or homeless people. So even though it's more apparent and like you can't deny it any further, I think most, I think I'm biased because I live in Ottawa now and like people here are not, they're either social activists or they don't care. Like they don't, they don't know at all what's going on in their city. Um, I don't, I, I'm afraid that people are just going to want to go back to what it was like before because it wasn't working before. It wasn't working for like my friends who are in like long-term care for different diseases, for, for homeless people, for basically anybody who already was marginalized. So like I, I, I hope the fact that it's pointed out made it more apparent or like less, less avoidable will change things, but I worry that it won't. Because like I think one of the questions that you had sent me was something about like what the government's doing. And in Ontario, I have been pleasantly surprised by what Doug Ford has been doing just because like I didn't vote for him. I never wanted it in power. I am no. embarrassed that he's my premier. And uh, I I've been I, like he could have been just a horrible, horrible person and not done anything. But at the same time, some of the problems that we have are based on him limiting funds and cutting things last year. So yeah, could you explain that not, a little bit more? Yeah, like our long-term care homes, uh, inspections of long-term care homes were defunded. And so I think we have something like six, 600 or 700 long-term care homes in Ontario, and only six of them were reviewed and were audited last year which is like 0.01%, um, and that's because the Ford government uh, defunded that, that, that unit. The Ford government in Ontario, the way the, the, pub, the health system works is every region is, is in a LIN, which is a local health integrated network. Um, when they came into power, they decided they wanted to scrap all of that, and like, not that I'm totally against it, because it's sort of like, mass governing body that I'm not sure it works properly but they didn't want to reform it they just wanted to like get rid of it so a lot of the things that were taken care of that way that were integrated between hospitals and home care and long-term care sort of stopped functioning properly um, they never put a new system in place they just wanted to um, so we're sort of like in limbo oh, wow. this is yeah we're sort of in limbo like we still refer to our section as LINs but we don't, the LINs don't actually exist anymore. And in terms of like how the hierarchy and the structuring and the management of that happens, I have no idea where it sits right now. Like we've sort of set that aside for the time being. Um, things like that are just with my clients at the, at the injection site, the Ontario government limited the number of safe injection sites and mandated that um, all of them needed to have access to treatment, which for mine is sort of easy because I work in a in a community health center, okay. but the ones that are the ones that are standalone, they don't have that luxury. And like, it's not like any of those any of our safe injection sites don't offer or don't have access to like getting people detox or treatment. But that's not the main goal of them. That's it's like it's like equating uh, making sure that ambulances have have access to long term care before they pick up somebody for an emergency. So it makes it makes no sense. All it is is like a values based thing, because fiscally and morally, they should we should have as many as we possibly need. 
But just like little things like that, like I'm happy he did the he's doing the job he is because he seems like he actually gives a shit. Um, he's actually doing a few things that are positive, but a lot of the problems are just worse because of his government in the first place. Yeah. Can wow. So I mean, we, you you mentioned a bit before about how people, um, you know, with substance abuse issues or people living with poverty are struggling. You know, in this sort mm -hmm. of context. I mean, we've seen in Montreal, for example. I mean, the situation here is not good, uh, especially no. when we're talking about uh, people struggling with um, pre-existing issues that um, create marginalization. Um, but yeah, so I was just wondering if you could maybe offer any thoughts about why it's important for the media to focus on this. I mean, I, I've been on, unusually, I've been, you know, following CBC and, you know, because they are providing information in terms of how the government's responding. But one thing I am seeing lacking is coverage that really details how different um, people in terms of social economic background are being impacted. I mean, it has been touched on, but it's definitely not a focus. I think it's fair to say that. I, uh, like, I don't think it should be this way, but I think the media either focuses on or, um, or decides to focus on the things that people can relate to the most. So, like, there's a lot of coverage of elderly people dying, of the long-term care homes, of, like, of, of all of that. I've seen that all over the news. I don't know much about what's happening with the, with the poor population, the homeless population in Montreal, honestly. And I think it's both, like, it's just easier for people to relate to, like, elderly people dying because everyone has a grandma and a grandpa or some, somebody old that, that could affect them. Um, but it's a little bit easier to dismiss homeless people because most of them either don't have families or don't talk to their families. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's unfortunate that it's not talked about as much. I think the media has been a little bit more critical than it, it usually is, even though it, it might be superficially so. But I don't. I think they focus on what people can relate to to make them understand the problem, and I don't think homeless people are a priority for, for anyone. Unfortunately. So just just for you working as a nurse right now, how how's it been going? How are you how are you feeling generally speaking, being in this job right now? So I wasn't worried or I'm not worried at all in terms of my own health or sickness. Um if it if it occurs in my hospital like uh, I feel a bit guilty about it, but because my specific hospital is slightly special, it's a it's a dual federally and provincially funded hospital because we do specialized cardiac care. So, like, we receive all of the patients from Eastern Quebec and all of the patients from Nunavut. So, our hospital gets different money. So, we're sort of special because I don't really have to worry about PPE. I don't really have to worry about... So, like, just being overloaded with sick people, like, we're a little bit protected because we're fancy. Um, yeah. It's not really it's not really fair. Like, we're part of the Ottawa Hospital, which is five, four, five different hospitals in Ottawa. But because we get different funding, I feel like we have a little bit more luxury with that. What I'm getting, because of both the jobs that I have, um, it already makes me, like, a little bit different than the hospital nurses. 
but personally, I am most frustrated with my management at the hospital and my coworkers at the hospital who, even though, like, they're good people, they're, like, nurses in general need to be, like, nice and good people to be able to do what we do, but they really, like, the, the, um, the lack of caring about other people is a little bit sad in terms of, like, when it first happened, all, all anyone would talk about was, like, what's going to happen to them. And yeah. I get that, but, like, nobody talked about all the patients we weren't going to have. We weren't going to do surgery on that have been waiting months for surgery. Or, like, the fact that none of our patients get to have any family around, which is not too bad when you have a regular course and you go to the hospital. Um, our heart surgery patients stay for five days. So if you're fine and you're healthy and you go home, five days later that's not the biggest deal but patients that stay for like a month or two that can't see anyone especially if they're older and they can't use technology like that's it's just that it's revealed how not how selfish but like how self-involved some people are and I thought I was in sort of a giving profession or like people who thought like that this was our duty, and it's it's sort of been revealed to me that there is definitely a difference between hospital nurses and community nurses. And, oh, that's uh, interesting. Okay. It's really, it's not everyone that thinks like that, but, like, there's probably, I work with a group of about, I think our staff's about 100 in the ICU, and there's probably five, maybe 10 nurses that agree with me about, like, how like how our healthcare system should work or who are even thinking about other people at this time. Like it's, it's really disappointing. Wow. Um, wow. Well, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that. Um, like, I guess, I guess, you know, I don't want to keep you on too long, but like, what, what does that mean to you about like the questions that this, um, context of pandemic brings up about the future direction of our society. I mean, you're a healthcare worker, but also, you know, I know that you've been connected to, you know, Cinema Politica and, you know, different, you know, efforts to try to bring light to these different injustices in society, some of which you've addressed. Um, so I, I don't know, like, what are your personal reflections at this point? Because you did make that choice to go through with, you know, being a nurse and yeah. You know, I, I know that you have an activist orientation and, you know, uh, some people have, you know, decided instead to just be community activists and you made that choice to be involved in an institution, you know, um, and I find, yeah. I find that really interesting. So I, I was just, yeah, if you had it, like, where, where are you at these days? I guess just fine. It was my final question. Well, I mean, honestly, I started, I don't, I don't need to work a second job. I've chosen to work a second job because I was lacking something from my first job. And for me, COVID has sort of like cleared things up of where I want to work. And it's definitely not at the hospital. Um, if anything, like it would be to like help change the mentality or help change the like um, the focus at the hospital. But it's just... Um, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. For me, it's, 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 it's actually been good. I've felt like I've never been more outspoken. I've never been more, um, like, firm in what I believe, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I've always, like, since working at the Safe Injection site, I was surrounded by people there who are, like, 100% activists and who are completely against sort of all authority, all government. They're very, like, a little bit more anarchist and... Uh, 
they're very angry about their situation, but they've been dealing with this for a lot longer than I have, and I come from a more traditional background, but uh, this has sort of made me more comfortable being an activist and like talking to people or being open about um, like about issues that like I didn't bring up a lot of things at the hospital for a long time because like it didn't feel necessary to talk to people about these things. But now sometimes when somebody makes like a little bit of an asinine comment or I don't know, it's just the dichotomy of sometimes like mm -hmm. working with people who are surviving and who are like living on the streets and then going to the hospital and having people worry about like whether or not they should have their maid come. It's like a very hard, yeah. Yeah. it's like two different realities completely. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I've always wanted to go back to school. It's been literally like five years that I wanted to go back to school. So I'm just going to, I've just decided that that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to leave the hospital sometime soon because it's really not the kind of place uh, where I feel like I'm doing the most, where I'm able to change the most, I guess. Wow. Like I do a good job. I love being in the ICU. It's very mentally rewarding, um, but uh, it doesn't feel like I'm helping that much there was an, wow thank you for sharing that um uh oh yeah and i just wanted to make sure to ask you because i know that an issue had come up before in terms of personal protective equipment and oh. in, in ontario so i just wanted to ask you like i know that there was a lot of you know uh moves that happened on that front um yeah just where where are things at for you but also just what you've heard in terms of healthcare in ontario so it's like it's extremely disparate depending on where you work both hospital community and city because like at first at my community job they only had um expired n95s because nobody had restocked them because the odds of us meeting it there are very small so they were using expired N95s as a regular surgical mask, which sort of works, but that's not what they're meant for. And at the hospital, we would get, even, even now, every single day we get, um, like on our front page, it tells us how many masks we have left of a certain kind. And like right beside it says how many days until we run out, which is like, it's nice to know, but it also doesn't in any way tell us about the supply chain or whether or not more are coming in. And the rules, so in the, the surgical ICU, the respiratory therapist is um, sort of stays on our unit. Like they're, they go throughout the hospital, but we are their home base. So because of that, we get to hear everything that's going on in the hospital. And because they go over to the other hospital, we hear everything that's happening about the other hospital the rules or the policies at both hospitals that are literally, they're linked together, they're completely different, but they're linked together, and we're technically supposed to be under the same umbrella. Um, the protocols are completely different, and it's 100% based on what's available and not what's safe. So like, there are certain procedures that we do that require N95s. We have been told at my hospital, if you feel you need one, you wear one, that's it. Like, take it, do it, do whatever you want. We are keeping them, like, saving them in case we can clean them afterwards. But so far, we haven't had to reuse anything. We haven't run out of things. At first, we sort of did on and off because we didn't know when things were coming in. But through the respiratory therapist, I, we found out that the other hospital, 
has completely different protocols and doesn't allow them to wear masks at certain times or the, the specialized N95 masks at certain times. And it's not based on any science. It's not based on any kind of Ministry of Health uh, recommendation. It's just based on the fact that they don't have as much supply. So mm -hmm. if, you if you change the rules as to what is recommended to use in a particular situation to fit what is what what the supply is as opposed to like what is actually safe for for personnel it seems really underhanded and just goes completely against everything that like science tells us mm -hmm. but it's because they're afraid of running out so like and it's 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 yeah it's very disappointing that's what i know about our hospitals but it depends on your city because like toronto has way less than us there are certain small towns that have too much to to know to do with um, luckily, I don't see anybody wearing N95s out in public, so that's nice because they're not needed for the public. And uh, yeah, and we have no issues with other things because, like, the gowns are very easily made, and we have two or three small uh, companies that are making new visors. And so our visors, we have like four or five different kinds, so that's not an issue. It's mainly the masks. Yeah. Right now we're using new surgical masks from, uh, I believe they're from China, and they're complete shit. They snap off your face at random times, so it's not great. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Wow, wow. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Okay. That was an interview with healthcare worker Caroline Horton, who works in an ICU unit in the Ottawa area. Um, sharing her reflections on what it's been like to be a healthcare worker at this time. I thought it was really important to share her voice here on Free City Radio. Thanks for tuning in to Free City Radio. Um, this podcast is um, an extension of the Free City Radio um, program that's on CKUT Community Radio, broadcasting every Wednesday in Montreal at 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. And... Um, this podcast is now available um, in, in a more informal format or a more podcast style format. Uh, you can find us on all the podcast um, platforms. Uh, look, look us up, subscribe, uh, Free City Radio. Uh, please give us a rating if you're down, if you're enjoying what you're hearing. Uh, you can always reach out to me and contact me if there's anything you'd like to share or something you'd like to hear in the podcast or even music you'd like to to hear. Uh, my email is stefan dot christoff at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, uh, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'm Stefan Christoph, uh, and um, thanks again. Uh, you can find Free City Radio's archives through Apple Podcasts, but also we have a SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. I wanted to go out with um, an old school track, something that I've been listening to lately from DJ Shadow from his second album, What Does Your Soul Look Like, Part 2. In a few moments, you will have an experience which will seem completely real. It will be the result of your subconscious fears transformed to your conscious awareness. You have five seconds to terminate this tape. Five, four, three, two, one.
Thank you.